Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Ever since Donald Trump was elected president, he's created a nonstop torrent of news. So much so that members of the media regularly claim that he's effectively trashed the traditional news cycle. Whether that's true or not, it is hard to keep up with what's going on in the White House, and each new uproar makes it difficult to remember what's already happened. Take Trump's first cabinet meeting way back on June 12, 2017. Remember that? It began with Trump proclaiming, Never has there been a president, with few exceptions, who's passed more legislation, who's done more things than I have. This, despite the fact that he had yet to pass any major legislation through Congress. Then it got odder. Trump listened as members of his cabinet took turns praising him. Mike Pence started it off saying, The greatest privilege of my life is to serve as vice president to the president who's keeping his word to the American people. Alexandra Acosta, the Secretary of Labor, said, I am privileged to be here, deeply honored, and I want to thank you for your commitment to the American workers. And Reince Priebus, still then the President's Chief of Staff, said, We thank you for the opportunity and the blessing to serve your agenda. As all of the praise rained down on him, Trump just looked on, smiled, and nodded approvingly. What's going on? Not only here, but in the endless praise disguised as press releases that's coming from the White House and from Trump's own Twitter account. Is this just good old-fashioned ass-kissing, or is there something more sinister happening? In their new book, Sucking Up, A Brief Consideration of Sycophancy, Mark and Deborah Parker explore this phenomenon of excessive flattery, why people do it, and how it alters the social world that we all must share. The Parkers look at examples from literature, politics, and other disciplines to give us a portrait of this false-faced, slickly-tongued, morally odious character, the sycophant. Deborah and Mark Parker, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you. We're glad to be here. Thank you for inviting us to join this conversation. Well, you all have written a book with a fascinating title, Sucking Up. A Brief con- Consideration of Sycophancy. And before we get to the actual book itself, which seems extremely relevant in our current political moment, um, I do want to ask, how does one become an expert about sycophants? What a dangerous question. <laughs> <laughs> I think that for us, when we wrote this book, we really didn't have much in mind in thinking about the political atmosphere. When we started, Trump was kind of a blip on the horizon, and he was simply baiting Barack Obama with the birther um, kind of accusations. We were just interested in basically thinking about this as something that's pervasive in everyday life. And I think that we became interested in it when we both had the wonderful experience of being chairs of our departments at the same time. And this put us in a different kind of circle of contacts. And we saw, I guess, in this new realm where there is not a lot of tangible product, we saw a lot more flattery and a lot more ingratiation than we'd seen perhaps back in our departments when we were just department members. Right. And we noticed that other people were um, uh, 
complaining about certain individuals and their flunkyism. And rather than complain about it, we decided we would um, write about it. So we didn't actually start off thinking we're going to write a book about sycophancy. It's more that the working environment um, showed so much of it while we were department chairs that we decided we'd write about it rather than complain. So the book's a kind of catharsis. <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, give us a starting point, right? So we all know ass kissers, you know, and bootlickers and things like that. But, you know, this is a, this is a fancy Latinate term, sycophancy. What are we actually dealing with when we think about this, this realm of behavior and human interaction? Well, it's probably the most, like all sort of human behaviors, it's incredibly complex. One of the things we found was that there are just many different ways of being ingratiating or sycophantic and different kinds of bootlicking. And we also found looking at the, I guess, the social science side of it, the research there, was that it's really a tricky problem to name it and to categorize it and to break it down into its essential units. It really turns on a lot of very ambiguous kinds of markers. So the book is is admirably short. How were you able to, to pinpoint what it was you wanted to talk about, you know, what, what you felt was crucial, given the kind of complexity that you've just named? Well, we started off thinking about literary examples. And when thinking about characters like Uriah Heep in um, Charles Dickens' uh, David Copperfield, or the many sycophants that uh, appear in Jane Austen's novels or Shakespeare's treatment of them. Uh, We started off thinking about literary examples since our training is in literature, but we also wanted to think about it from other perspectives. And the more we worked on it, the more we began adding other ways of looking at it. We looked at a few historical examples that would include Henry Kissinger, Tony Blair, Benjamin Disraeli, Emma Hamilton, and there are a couple anecdotal uh, bits on some people in the Trump administration as well. We also started looking into what uh, earlier literature in psychology And then a bit later in business literature has to say about ingratiation. There they have the term that is in business literature, IM, which is impression management. (laughs) Well, I I would love if if we can move on to to some of those different realms in which sycophancy falls falls in. But I just want to ask you a question right off the bat to kind of get our readers situated. So, So how do you know a sycophant? Right. Like, how do you know somebody's just not being agreeable and con- convivial? And, you know, it's nice to feel good. And somebody does that for us. And how do we know we're in the realm of something that's starting to get a little nasty? That really is an age old question. And the modern sort of treatments of it by uh, there's a good treatment of it by um, by a psychologist in the 60s who talks about how it's difficult to find what he calls the normal baseline from which this behavior deviates. Uh, The idea of being there is that it's just very difficult to tell. And he tries to sort of locate it by saying that it turns on intention, that it's a question of what the person intends. But what he finds in his book and through his experiments is that 
this is complicated by two things. First of all, you can't really ever tell what someone's intention is, as we all know. And secondly, that many people who do this kind of thing, who flatter, are not really fully aware of their own intentions. So there's a kind of there's a complexity on complexity that's added. I think that all, all I could say is that there's in you, although you can't draw the line sometimes between whether this is flattery or sycophancy, you can certainly see a lot of cases where most people would agree. And that's what we found from just talking about it with other people. There are a lot of times when people just absolutely are sure that someone's behavior that they're talking about anecdotally is sycophancy. And really not a lot of discussion of those border cases, which are so troubling. If one wants to go further back, way further back, then uh, Plutarch, the ancient Greek philosopher, has a wonderful essay on how to tell a friend from a flatterer. And I think some of his observations would still apply today because it is extremely difficult to tell when someone is simply being kind or gracious and when they are are sucking up with ulterior pers- uh, purposes in mind. Uh, Plutarch has in mind a more courtly situation, but one could uh, perhaps out a sycophant today by, by doing what he suggests. And one, you express your opinions, and if you are the target of the ingratiator, he or she will always agree with you. Uh, you could then talk about something and then change your mind about it and say something else, perhaps expressing a completely different opinion. And if that person then goes along with you and agrees with your new opinion, and you do this a few times, because it does, it's one of the things that is, makes it very hard to recognize if someone is an inveterate sycophant is you can only see this over time. But if the person just changes uh, back and forth as you do, he or she is likely a sycophant. That's great. I'm going to entitle this interview, How to Catch a Sycophant. (laughs) And we'll go from there. Um, So so what's so bad about it, though? I mean, you know, so so everybody likes to be flattered. It's great to walk out in, you know, your new dress into the party and have somebody say that's great. As as those of us that are professors, it's great when our students just nod and our graduate students want to be us. I mean, you know, we, we oh, yeah, that's just a little bit of ass kissing. I understand it. So so what's the problem? You know, why is it so kind of infectious. Well, Dante has a lot to say about it, and he has uh, quite a different take. What kind of situations which you've just described, I wouldn't necessarily classify them as uh, sycophancy. You know, people are being complimentary to one another, and that happens in uh, social interactions all the time. We tend to think of... uh, sycophancy as a transaction between a target, uh, um, the ingratiator himself, and perhaps a couple of observers, people who observe this action. So it's just this transaction limited to a small group of people. Dante, however, sees uh, sycophancy very differently. How does he see it? Yeah. What, yeah. what shocks many readers and many of my students is that Dante places uh, flattery. He uses the term flattery rather than sycophancy, but it's essentially interchangeable in the eighth circle of hell. 
Now, this is one of the lowest circles. There are nine circles of hell, and he puts the flatterers among 10 other groups of people in the eighth circle. Murderers, tyrants, they're punished in the seventh circle. So the idea that someone who is a flatterer is punished in a lower circle of hell always surprises readers. So unlike um, many people today who see sycophancy as this transaction between the ingratiator and the target, Dante sees it as a sin against the community, that it creates this atmosphere in which frankness is not possible, that it falsifies the very basis of our um, communication with others. And more interestingly, he links sycophancy because there are 10 other um, types of sin in the eighth circle with other sins like hypocrisy, sowing discord and division, lying, embezzlement, thieves. So it's it's linked to these other actions as as sycophancy often is with hypocrisy and lying. So as as you're going on, I'm starting to think my gosh, this sounds to me like, you know, my news feed on my <laughs> So so tell us a little bit, you know, maybe maybe let's take this first step. Why look backwards into literature to learn about a social phenomenon that's going on now? We hear all these things about like the unprecedented state of veniality in the White House, this new phenomenon that we've never seen before, um, which might suggest that we we take a, a fresh look at our new political configuration and the ways that we can or can't talk to each other, can or can't tell the truth. And you all, one of the, the fascinating things about the book is you're going way back to try to figure out this human behavior. Um, so tell us a little bit about that choice and what it yields. Well, I guess you could say we're just inveterate promoters of literature as a, a good way of knowing the world. But I also think that, in a sense, we're losing that perspective of what literature can do, uh, as opposed to social sciences and other ways of being in the world. And one of the things many of the texts we're looking at do is they really give you a kind of a, a training in empathy. You're sort of allowed to see, sometimes even from the sycophant's, sycophant's point of view, exactly what it feels like to do these kinds of things. And I think that some of that is lost. I think literature can ask questions in ways that other kinds of disciplines won't. And, and of course, that would go the other way as well. I mean, there's some things that sociology and psychology ask that other disciplines do not ask. I would add that with historical figures or even what's happening, say, in Trump's cabinet, it's not easy to determine the intention of the flatterer. And literature, because it's much more imaginative, can explore a sycophant or other types of figures in a much broader, it can offer a much broader perspective over, um, so some, if you take someone like Uriah Heep or Lucy Steele in Sense and Sensibility, Austin's novel, you see the consequences, what, um, in, what caused Uriah to become a sycophant, uh, its effect, its, its corrosive effects, um, it you can't. You don't have that opportunity often, especially in a working situation, to know either the intent of the ingratiator or 
what transpires necessarily over a period of time. So Deborah, please, please tell us about that. What would be the origins of a sycophant, the, the behavioral bedrock that would allow that characterological trait to, to grow and fester? Well, probably the, among the examples that we use, uh, Uriah Heap, and I don't intend to keep talking about him, <laughs> is the best. Because Dickens, his father was a sycophant. And when he's ultimately, he, he's extremely destructive in, in the novel. He sidles up to his uh, employer and tries to ingratiate himself with his Mr. Wickfield's uh, daughter. And he causes a, com- a complete collapse, so a financial collapse within that company. Uh, Dave, uh, David's aunt, uh, Betsy, is um, bankrupt because of his actions. And what Dickens explores is how society actually contributed to Heap's um, sycophancy, his self-abasement, and how he, more specifically, he and his father were schooled to be always uh, humble. And in fact, that's the word that recurs repeatedly throughout David Copperfield, humble is the way uh, Dickens put uh, adds it. Mark might have more to say since he did a lot of, he, he's in English and I'm in Italian. I think there are a lot of more modern novels that actually get at this in slightly different ways and in, in a very interesting ways. If you look at Patricia Highsmith's novel, The Talented Mr. Ripley, you have the kind of very tongue-in-cheek novel of development in which Ripley starts as a kind of a nobody, a loser, He's kind of a little bit corrupt, trying to sort of run various schemes, but he's really too timid and too afraid to carry them all the way through. He does a check scam with uh, the IRS that he's afraid to crash the checks that he actually gets. And it's only through placing himself in different situations where he becomes a kind of virtuoso sycophant that he develops character. He imagines uh, he, he sucks up to basically someone he eventually kills, Dickie Greenleaf, and he wants to become Dickie Greenleaf. And in a sense, he goes one better. He imagines a better Dickie Greenleaf at a certain point that he wants to become as he's sucking up to him. And so there's a kind of an imaginative component as he not only sort of recreates the object of his adulation and sycophancy, but also recreates himself. By the end of the novel, he's he's uh, under sort of he, he's being chased down by the police. He thinks he might be caught, but he's also imagining taking some of Dickie's money, whom he's killed, and going to Greece. And he imagines himself returning to Greece like um, a conquering hero, like Jason or uh, Ulysses. He's really become a kind of more powerful person, albeit a completely evil one, uh, through the power of his sycophancy. So, so what do you do with that, Mark? I mean, if somebody's listening to the, the traits of the sycophant and they're saying, well, yeah, it's pretty nasty, but, but that's how you get ahead. You, you see the person in power that you want to become. They respond to the flattery that you give them. You move forward in your career or in your political positioning. And, hey, you're successful. Maybe you don't have to go to murder. Um, you just have to take a shower after your conversation because you feel all gross. But... Lo and behold, you're in a better position than you were through the flattery you dispersed. I, I think both the research in psychology and um, also a lot of the novels that you read sort of demonstrate pretty clearly that it does work. 
Uh, and that's one of the, I think you have to kind of just take a deep breath and tell the truth. Uh, it does work uh, and it has worked for a long time and it works in many different ways. And there's a kind of the, the moral issue, which we often leave out in talking about um, sycophancy, is probably one that could use a little bit of revival uh, in thinking about it because it, it certainly does work. Well, tell, tell us what's, what's at stake morally. Well, I think that uh, if you want to basically tell the truth and you want to create a to live in a world in which you're not sculpting an alternate reality for people, um, then you you shouldn't do this. I mean, one of the things about sycophancy is that, as in Ripley's case, it changes the sycophant, and often people downplay that, uh, thinking that they can take this up and leave it off as a kind of transaction. At, at its core, you're trying to basically change the reality. Of the world for the target. You're trying to basically make their world into something it isn't. And I think the concomitant sort of reality is that you also change it for yourself, for the sycophant um, who is absolutely doing this. And certainly it changes the world for those who are the observer. One of the things that's often left out in discussions of sycophancy is there's often an appalled group of people who are standing around watching this, watching the sycophancy, watching the success and feeling the consequences, feeling the slime effect, and also sort of seeing that it actually works. It changes their reality as well. It really becomes down to a question of what kind of a world you want. You can think about a polite, kind world in which people treat each other with respect and work together, or you can think about a more manipulative world in which people, I think, mistakenly think that they can engage in this practice without it changing their character. It can't be eradicated. It's been around for a long, long time, from ancient times on. Uh, there have been sycophantic characters. There's sycophants in the Bible. But that said, you can discourage it. You can create working environments in which um, the director, the boss, discourages sycophancy and allows people the independence and autonomy that they need in order to, to work really effectively, because those two qualities, independence and autonomy, are essential for um, anybody in the workplace uh, to, to thrive and not feel that he or she must get along simply by ingratiating, by, by sucking up. And it can be, it can be disastrous if your uh, the, 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 those in the workplace don't feel they can tell the truth. They may not be promoted um, if somebody else is an expert flatterer, but that will cost that person. Uh, it will change them. You, you can take someone like um, Chris Christie as an example. I mean, he had the reputation when he was a governor of being a kind of tell it as, as it is person, a bit gruff and everything like that. But through his, I mean, he's just become someone who's uh, constantly abasing himself. Remember when you you think about a, a workplace or a social environment that would be blissfully running free of sycophancy, is there an example or illustration that comes to mind or, or a particular kind of 
institutional protocol where truth to power would be encouraged rather than that thing for which you sacrifice, you know, your promotion or your job? Well, there are businesses that fall loosely under the aegis of what's known um, as conscious capitalism. Such companies include uh, the Container Store, uh, Ben & Jerry's, um, some of the places that produce um, environmental products. Um, Zappos is another one. There's a whole list of them. Not all of them easily come to mind, but the, you know, Ben and Jerry's, the container store, Zappos, they, um, they have very different workplaces than others in which, um, other professions such as PR, retail, where, Every salesperson has a computer number that's registered and the effectiveness of his or her sales are all recorded. And it's it's very important for for them to to flatter customers in order to 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 make the sales, but discourage that a bit, too. And in these other businesses, if I could add to that, one place that should be a pretty good candidate for the kind of job space that you're talking about would be academia. Um, once you get tenure, you have a kind of autonomy and independence if you recognize it as such. And I think one of the somewhat depressing aspects of this is that in academia, so many people don't sort of resist the uh, temptation to perform this kind of behavior. I think that this has gotten worse, perhaps, in the what some critics have called the all-administrative university, which is more hierarchical and less focused on the faculty production of teaching and research. But um, academia, I guess this might be a little elegiac, um, but academia, I think, was one of these places that had a kind of possibility of getting along without this kind of um, activity. Yes, I, I love the idea that Tenure comes with the moral obligation to tell the truth. It is a nice ideal. Well, okay, so uh, as somebody who, who finds the moral universe that you just described a, a little while back, Mark, very appealing, um, I do find myself, when, when I look to the White House, feeling like one of those bystanders witnessing this behavior, say when a cabinet meeting opens with everyone going around in a circle and complimenting Trump. So I, I'm curious as to, you know, you two having written this book, having immersed yourself in the history and, and sort of sociology of sycophancy, what do you see going on right now that so, you know, what are the what are the journalists and the commentators and the pundits that are that are writing about this missing? I think one thing that they're missing is it, it seems almost as if it's an attack on one party, but certainly sycophancy is pervasive in both parties. I think the difference right now is that we didn't have as good a way of seeing it. You could listen to some of the tapes during the Johnson administration in which advisors are talking to Johnson about the war and, and really doing something. But now I think that we've got a different situation in which the sycophancy that's required is not personal and private behind closed doors. It's by definition, it has to be spectacular and it has to be in the media. You don't sort of suck up in that close personal way. You suck up sort of through the media. You speak to the media, you praise your boss, and he sees it then um, through the media. And I think that's a kind of, that's a sort of a change that is driven both by, I think, just the particular 
character of our, our president, but also through the availability of these kinds of media. It's a, it's a, it's like a fancy at a distance. So kissing the ring has become in, in an odd sense, uh, an older form of sycophancy because sycophancy doesn't have that kind of bodily presence anymore. It doesn't have to. And Deborah, how about you? One of the most distinguishing features of um, the Trump presidency is that he really turns uh, sycophancy into a spectacle. And um, his word for it now is loyalty. Think of what happened with Comey, who offered um, honest loyalty, but Trump wanted loyalty. Uh, Actually, I'm going to have to correct that. It wasn't the the phrase isn't exactly honest loyalty, and I'll get back to that later. But um, it's the spectacular aspect of the presidency, uh, having that roundtable discussion of that cabinet meeting in June in which each person after after Pence uh, outvied the other in declaring what an honor and what a privilege it was to, to serve him. Um, to make it that public is not is, is very unusual. When some of Hillary Clinton's emails were um, exposed one thing that journalists one thing that journalists noted was um, the amount of flattery that took place. But this was private. This was not. She didn't put this on stage, and that is a big difference. And with Trump, you have to turn yourself into um, kind of a human Photoshop uh, machine. Uh, Kellyanne Conway is a very good example. She doesn't just simply say, you know, his goals are my goals, which she has said, but she goes far beyond that. And we're not, he's not looking for a, a kind of snow white mirror of truth. You've got to reflect him back to himself in this. Uh, you've got to burnish, you've got to enhance. Yeah, coordinating both your answers, it seems that, that we should be on the lookout that, that the spectacle of witnessing sycophancy has never been so great. Right. And, and it is that third party that's become almost as important, um, that sort of group of people who are watching, and that, that is what's really required. I mean, uh, and, and I think media is really crucial here. At one point, well, in, in a you could think of Trump as having started with doing this way back when, when he was just a developer and calling in and using a pseudonym to talk about um, himself. Uh, so he was kind of using that kind of sycophancy at a distance in a kind of a loop. And we saw a little bit of that during the um, transition period where there was a, a kind of a, a camera, an automatic uh, camera down at the in the base in, in the entrance of Trump Tower. And you would watch people who were vying for jobs walk across the lobby uh, with this camera and they were then, then go to the elevator and be swept up to the heavens with uh, the president whom they were uh, coming to meet. And now we have, I think, uh, Kelly and Conway, I think she's smart. She managed to basically suck up in three media in one day once um, on, it was on TV and on Twitter and on one other sort of thing. So she managed to pull three platforms together uh, of uh, spectacular sycophancy at once. It was, it was very impressive. Coordinated multimedia, sycophancy, multi-platform, I guess. Yeah. Oh, I thought 
of um, couple of examples of um, people have been brought down by sycophancy. Um, Prince and MC Hammer, both of whom were notorious for having these huge entourages, and um, both went bankrupt. MC Hammer had a, a staff of over two hundred people at one point, and you know supported them all. And you know these are all kind of. Fan armies are hangers on, and you know they're happy to sing for their supper, to be part of the entourage. So, Deborah, that's a fascinating example, and I think it speaks to one of the pleasures of your book, which is there's just such a fascinating range of examples, and you know you're dropping in in literature and history and deep history and uh, social science and the business place. I'm wondering if if there was ever a moment as you were writing this book and sifting through all of the possible examples that you could use that that you found one that you know this was particularly illuminating or I had not thought about it in this way. And then I encountered this, you know, essay from Plutarch or, or this moment in this novel and suddenly there it was. I think I've come to understand the the phenomenon um, much better after having written the book, after actually having had uh, discussions with interviewers like you that have provoked a lot of thinking about uh, what we wrote about, but in different ways through the questions that they ask. But I think one thing that uh, I'm thinking about far more, especially recently, is just uh, how the transformative effect of sycophancy. There's a you dance with the devil, and the devil changes you. You you will be transformed if you are an inveterate sycophant, someone who furthers his or her career. Um, along uh, with constant flattery, you know, acting the flunky. Um, a lot of times, sycophants, because perhaps because of the uh, sort of self-loathing that comes with continuous um, ab- self-abasement, they, they partake in what the business literature calls kick up, lick down. So you suck up to the boss, but then you... Uh, abuse the you know, few underlings that are below you. And doing that over years, decades, as we've seen in some people, really changes them and, and not for the better. There's this tremendous act of the imagination, which the uh, flatterer undergoes to partly justify um, his or her actions. There are these wonderful examples in, uh, in Proust in which um, someone enhances and changes the target, giving, imbuing the target with qualities that justify his flattery of the person. Mark, you were going to jump in there. Yeah, I was going to mention that Proust is going to be one of the most interesting ones for me just for that idea is that it takes some imaginative capacity sometimes to actually carry this out. Another book that really sticks with me is um, The Remains of the Day. Uh, The Remains of the Day always sticks in my mind as one of the more interesting novels about sycophancy because you have as a main character and as a narrator a butler who abases himself in every possible way. Uh, to the the man he serves. And throughout the novel, you see him justifying himself. It's kind of a long, continuous self-justification. And he does so by basically imagining a kind of allegiance to a professionality, 
to a standard of activity as a butler, that what constitutes a great butler. And it's really quite an act of imagination. He is, he is really flattering and ingratiating and bootlicking and repressing himself. But yet he thinks he's sort of fulfilling a kind of ideal uh, as a butler. Um, and I think that goes back to Proust's idea of the intervening effects of imagination, that these become the mediating process for a lot of sycophants is to really imagine someone greater than they are. So, so there's an analogous, analogous situation, which we've heard again and again, right? Which is when we're, we're looking at our social media feeds, when we're looking at the news that's been tailored for us, we are in effect getting a world that we would prefer to live in rather than one that is being told to us directly and frankly. So are we all in danger of the flatterers at this point to the extent that we're dependent on technology that's being tailored to us? Well, marketing and sales has always had a great dose of flattery involved in it. And I think with the intensity of the way in which they can particularize the pitch through these kinds of digital means, I think it does become a kind of danger for us that we can live in a in a world which sort of we choose and that flatters us uh, a great deal. I think that this is uh, again what's this relates back to the sort of the, the these transactions in the current administration, which are so digitally driven. I think that really is a different kind of way of being a flatterer than perhaps in the past. Maybe it removes some of the um, slime uh, for the flatterer because there's not that kind of proximity. So, so when you think about, I mean, another virtue of this book is that it, it's coming at such an opportune moment. Um, when you see yourself as intellectuals on the public stage who are, are launching this book into our discussion and kind of collective understanding, is there a particular point that you would love that would stick that, that's a very good question. I hope it, 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 it serves as a kind of a prompt to make us um, rethink the workplace and the conditions which encourage sycophancy and that some employers will, uh, will in fact, discourage it because they won't be able to eradicate it, but they can make it clear to their staffs that uh, this is not the way they want to conduct business. I think that like a lot of old sort of literary works, it's not so much being informed as reminded. And I think that um, if we could maybe prompt, as Deborah said, this discussion and maybe remind people of some of the, the dangers of this activity, I think that would be mostly what I want to do. We certainly can't define it in the exact ways that one would like to define this behavior, but I think we can at least sort of prompt a conversation about it. Well, I, I've certainly appreciated the chance to have a conversation with you both. And I can't help but think, where does one go after working on Sycophancy? What are you all working on next? Now, that is a... Deborah, do you want to take that one? I've been working on... I, I, I'm an Italianist by training, and I've taught Dante uh, for the, more than 25 years. And recently, I came across uh, a reference that uh, had, was attributed to Dante by John F. Kennedy, and that's what I'm working on right now. It's JFK's Dante. He, his brother Robert Kennedy, said that this one particular quote, which condemns neutrality, uh, was his, was uh, John Kennedy's favorite favorite quote, and he cited Dante many, many times um, through the course of his career as a senator um, and a bit as a president as well. 
Are you going to tell us the the quote or are you going to make us wait for the book? Oh, it's um, the hottest places in hell are reserved for those who, in a time of moral crisis, remain neutral. It's probably going to be an article, but um, I've enjoyed working on it a lot because it's um, allowed me to look at all different kinds of documents that I don't normally look at, you know, archival materials and the uh, JFK Presidential Library in Boston. It's really been a lot of fun looking into the question. That does sound fun. And Mark, how about you? I think my next couple of projects are back to some much more conventional research within the comfortable confines of English literature. So I'm going to be working on an edition of John Galt, and I'm also going to be finishing up, finishing up a book on Blackwood's Edinburgh Magazine, which is a 19th century magazine, which really kind of charts the birth of media, in certainly in literary studies. Well, Deborah Parker and Mark Parker, we thank you very much for being on the New Books Network, and uh, thank you for bringing up this fascinating topic. Thank Thank you, Eric. My name is Eric LeMay, and you've been listening to an interview with Mark and Deborah Parker, authors of Sucking Up, A Brief Consideration of Sycophancy, on the New Books Network.